0: shootings of African-American men in Minneapolis, in Louisiana, to the fatal shootings of five white police officers in Dallas, to a town hall meeting that our president holds this past week, it's clear that racism is alive in our land. Beyond that, to the Orlando massacre that we just witnessed, to this past week in France, uh, the attacks, 84 killed, that ISIS takes credit for. There's a lot of violence and a lot of fatality and a lot of injustice in our midst. And the question that arises in moments like this, it's the age-old question, but it's where is God? What is he doing about this? In fact, it, it, it raises the two questions that the psalmist Asks at the beginning of Psalm 10, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? How do we answer those questions? The psalmist is going to answer it for us here in Psalm 10. As we've been starting this series on the Psalms of praying through the Psalms, we're going to learn how to pray through injustice, how to think about injustice how to respond to injustice. And so we begin, before we learn how to pray through it, we need to understand what's at the core of injustice. What is really the nature of the problem that the psalmist talks about in these first 11 verses? And what you'll know is that there's there's an order here and it's critical. Verses two through four focus on the heart motives or the thoughts that produce the actions that the psalmist talks about in verses seven through 10, All right? So the heart motives. is verse two. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Verse three, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. Again in verse three, the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Verse four, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. Verse four, all his thoughts are there is no God. So You have arrogance, you have boasting, you have pride. That These are the, the thoughts and the motivations in the heart that lead to what we read in verses seven through 10, which verse seven speaks of evil words, cursing, deceit, oppression. And then verses eight through 10 speak of exploitation, taking advantage of the weak, an advantage of the powerless for selfish gain. This order is critical. Behavior always begins in the heart. An outward behavioral sin always has an inward thought or motivation of the heart beginning. And this is what Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter five in his Sermon on the Mount. Verses 21 to 22 of Matthew 5. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, those who commit murder are liable to judgment. And Jesus says, but I tell you, those that are angry in their heart at a brother are liable of judgment. And then verses 27 to 28, Jesus says, you've heard it said, those who commit adultery are liable to judgment. I tell you that anyone who has committed lust or had a lustful thought is guilty of judgment. What what is Jesus teaching here? And this is really important. He's teaching that you are not on an elevated moral platform above the murderer or the adulterer. No, what he's saying is you are on the same moral playing field, just at different points along the the spectrum of thought and behavior. What separates you from a murderer? What separates you from an adulterer? It's the grace of God. By the grace of God, your angry thought has not progressed to murder. By the grace of God, your lustful thought may have have not progressed into adultery. And if I can expand it a bit here to what we're facing in our world today, If if anger is the seed of murder and lust is the seed of adultery, what's the seed of racism? It's self-righteousness, which more simply put, it's the need to feel superior to someone else. Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector come into the temple and what does the Pharisee pray? God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this, tax collector. See, there's a myriad of things that we can use to elevate ourselves above someone else. Race is just one of them. Body image, wealth, education, uh, schooling of children preferences, political party affiliations. There's a myriad of things that we use to elevate ourselves over someone else. So what separates you from the racist person who commits oppression and maybe even murders someone of a different color? It's the grace of God. That your self-righteousness, that your desire, your sinful desire to elevate yourself above someone else has not moved into that level of oppression or murder. Now you say, Keith, why are you spending all this time talking about the heart and tensions behind injustice? and Jesus' perspective on injustice. Because if if you don't understand that you are on the same moral platform as the murderer or the adulterer or the racist who commits a violent act, albeit maybe along the different part of the spectrum from thought to behavior, if you don't understand that, then you yourself will become an agent of injustice. Now let me explain the question that arises with what we've seen in our world is this, where was God, right? Where was God? Why isn't he putting an end to this? Why doesn't he put an end to these evil people and get rid of them? Well, here's the answer. Because to crush them, he would have to crush you. That God doesn't play favorites. That he judges the angry thought just as he judges murder. Yes, greater degree of severity. He judges the lustful thought just as he judges adultery. That God doesn't play favorites when it comes to, listen, if God operated that way, if you just want him to get rid of the evil people, just crush him. Right? If you want God to operate that way, the world would have ended in Genesis 3. You and I wouldn't be here. It would have ended just like that. God would have been done with it. And so it's not that simple of an answer because God's judgment doesn't play favorites. See, the problem is we want judgment out there. We don't want judgment in here. And as long as the problem is out there and they are the problem, then you're liable. You will, maybe in your mind, maybe physically, take vengeance into your own hands. Or in your prayer life, take vengeance into your own hands. So how does God respond to injustice? If that's the core problem, and that we're part of the problem, how does he respond to injustice? The psalmist in verse 12 cries out, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. The psalmist is saying, God, do something about this. I mean, we would say the same thing with what we're seeing in our world. God, do something about this. The violence, the hatred, the killing, the fatalities, do something about it. That's where the psalmist is at. Rise up, God. Lift up your hand. And God responds in two ways. You'll see at first, he sees. Verse 14. But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation. It says he sees it. The word note there means to consider. It means that he sees it. He considers it. He grieves it. That God does see it. He grieves injustice and brokenness. He grieves the attacks in Nice, France. He grieves the, the killing of police officers in Dallas. He grieves the two that were, that were shot by police in Minneapolis and Louisiana. He grieves the massacre in the Orlando nightclub. He grieves the, uh, the 12-year-olds in Cambodia that are sold into brothels as sex slaves. He grieves that deeply. So what's he doing about it then? Well, he doesn't just see it and consider it and grieve it. He does something about it. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. But you do see, what's it say? that you may take it into your hands. God says, I I take it into my hands. The Hebrew word there for hands, it's a word that can mean hands or side. And what we see there and what we hear is God announcing in advance the cross of Jesus Christ. That the nails went through Jesus' hands. That the spear was thrust into his side. That all of the evil, the injustice, the sin, the hatred was thrust into Jesus on the cross. It was poured out on him. That all of the violence that that we have seen in our world and that we see today was poured out onto Jesus Christ. You know, the cross was a violent act. We sanitize it, it was violent. And what led up to it? When Jesus was scourged and flogged, literally his back was ripped to pieces. His flesh was mutilated. By the time he got to the cross, he was barely recognizable. The blood was flowing. It was a violent act. And it was violent because that one act of violence on the cross was to do away with all violence. You know, I I watched Twitter and social media in the past couple weeks, and if you've seen it, it's blowing up with famous people, with professional athletes that are are tweeting and standing up and saying, we're going to take a stand for violence, right? Black lives matter. White lives matter. Asian lives matter. Hispanic lives matter. All lives matter. And people are rising up and saying, enough with the violence. I love it. But there is no uh, willpower campaign that's going to get rid of the violence in our land. There's one answer to the violence. There's one answer to the injustice, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. That Jesus Christ took it upon himself. He absorbed it. You say, what's God doing? Where's he at? Oh, he's done something. He poured it all onto his son. He concentrated it onto his son at the cross. You see, apart from Jesus, the world is just a tennis match where one act of violence is returned for another act of violence. The only answer is what we see on the cross. You know that when Jesus died, that the earth shook, that the rocks split, that the land went dark. It was as if the world was convulsing, that God was taking his world and he was shaking it. and and squeezing the violence and the hatred and the injustice and the sin all onto his son. That's why it was such a violent moment in human history. And that's why the world was shaken because Jesus was taking it upon himself. Yes, God has done something about it. It's the cross of Jesus and it's the only, only answer to injustice. Biblical scholar Christopher Wright, he tells a story of a friend from India who he knew, who at the time was teaching, but he recalls growing up in the the Dalit uh, outcast community in India. And he recalls how he and his family uh, were persecuted um, by the the higher class Hindu class that would, would persecute him. And so he made, as a child, as he went through this and he grew up, he was convinced that he was gonna study hard and work hard, get through university with a solid education so he could get a job of power and influence so he could enact revenge on these people who had hurt him and his family so bad. He gets to the university, first day or first semester, gets there, finds a Bible. And it was a Bible that was actually written in his, his state language, And he knew the Bible was the Christian's holy book. He he started reading it. And one of the first stories he stumbled upon was the story in 1 Kings 21 of King Ahab and Naboth. And it's the story of King Ahab using his power unjustly to steal land from Naboth, this just ordinary farmer. And he read this story and he went, that's the story of my life. I've been taken advantage of my family by these powerful people. But then he he read on, and he got to the, um, the story of Elijah, and he read about how Elijah, in the name of the God of the Bible, told King Ahab that he would be judged, and that he would be punished for this. And in that moment, he was astounded. He had millions of gods within his Hindu system, and yet he had never discovered or met a God like this that was just that would fight for the oppressed. And then he went on and he read eventually got to the New Testament and understood that justice was satisfied with Jesus life, death and resurrection. That Jesus had satisfied justice and that he was now called to forgive rather than take revenge on these people who had hurt he and his family so much. He was changed. He was converted. He was saved. He saw that God had dealt with injustice and he put it on his son and that now he didn't have to take it into his own hands. Now this is starting to move into our final point and that is how do you respond to injustice? We see the problem of it. It's us, not just out there. We see God's answer to injustice and what he's done in the cross and so What is our response? How does God's response to injustice inform our prayerful response to injustice? I want you to see first that God's response to injustice calls us to pray for our enemies, to pray for those that commit acts of injustice, not to seek revenge. If you look at verse 14, right, is the psalmist's announcement of the the cross. He takes it into his own hands. And then look at the the next verse, verse 15. It says, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Now you say, Keith, that sounds pretty retaliatory. The word arm is a metaphor for power. It doesn't literally mean break the arm of the evildoer. It means break the power of the evildoer, the power of the wicked, How is the power of the wicked and the evildoer broken? Well, it's through the only way it can be broken, the cross of Jesus Christ. That what the psalmist is praying here is for God's salvation and justice to come to the wicked person or to the person who commits injustice, that they might be saved and changed and forgiven and come to the foot of the cross, there's an animating power behind all of this violence and hatred and wickedness. It's called sin. And Jesus at the cross broke the power of sin for those that turned to him. And so it's, a, it's prayers for our enemies. Uh, Ruby Bridges, you may recognize the name. It was a, um, a movie that came out in 1998 uh, that was a true story of Ruby Bridges, who in 1960, Uh, was the first, was a six-year-old, was the first uh, woman of or girl of color to go to an all-white school in Louisiana in the midst of a segregationist school. And there's a scene in this movie where uh, Ruby Bridges is walking into this school through the angry crowds with four federal agents around her. And the crowds are angry, that this African-American girl is coming into this all-white school and, and she starts to walk up the steps and she gets to the top of the steps and she turns around and she walks down a few steps and she begins to, it looks like she's speaking to the crowd and the agents are, are trying to get her to, to come, to get into the school and, and she pulls back and resists and she continues to speak to the crowd and while this is happening, there's a psychiatrist that's watching and this psychiatrist was... Um, a person who, who uh, specialized in child stress and had told the family of Ruby Bridges that, that he would give free counseling. And so finally, the, the federal agents get her up and into the school and escorted in. The next scene is the psychiatrist sitting down with Ruby Bridges in her home at the kitchen table. And here's the discourse between the two. She's, she's coloring at the kitchen table and the psychiatrist says, but honey, I saw you talking to them. Did you finally get angry with them? Did you tell them just to leave you alone? And Ruby answers, no, I didn't tell them anything. I didn't talk to them. And he says, but Ruby, I was there. I saw your lips moving. She says, I wasn't talking to them. I was praying for them. The doctor's startled. He says, praying for them? She says, yes. She says, I pray every day for them in the car, but that day I forgot. Oh, well, so what did you pray? Ruby puts her crayons down, folds her hands together and says, please God, forgive these people because even if they say these mean things, they don't know what they're doing. So can you forgive them just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you? You see, God's, response to injustice by putting his son on the cross to take all the violence and the wickedness upon himself calls you and I to pray for our enemies, to pray for those that commit injustice. Some of you here are victims of injustice, maybe presently, and God calls you to pray for the person that is committing those acts against you or that has, that he would break the power of evil in them, that they would come to the foot of the cross find forgiveness in Jesus. Second, God's response to injustice calls us to pray the already, but not yet. Now, what do I mean by this? Let's start with the already. Look at verse 16. It says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. The psalmist is talking about the land, the promised land. He's looking back at what God has done in history. And he's specifically talking about the promised land where God rescued his people out of Egypt and eventually delivered them to the promised land. And he said, listen, I've got land. It's it's mine and it's yours, but you're gonna have to go and fight the battle of removing the people. And when God's people moved into the land, they always came across challenges and discouragement. And over and over, God would remind them of his promise. This is already your land. It's already your land. You just need to walk into it and go into battle. If we we run this through the New Testament, when Jesus was preparing to go to the cross in his life here on this earth, he repeatedly said the kingdom of God is at hand the kingdom is here. If you see me cast out demons, the kingdom is here. What we learn is that the kingdom of God came upon the earth at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That the dawn of the new world happened at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That the kingdom is here now. Not fully, but it is here now. It's invisible. Think about uh, an invisible ink pen with a black light if you've ever done this, but you, you take the invisible ink pen and you write something or you draw a picture on a white piece of paper. When you get done drawing it, it's there. You just can't see it. But when you pull the black light and you shine it over it, you see what's there. It comes to life. It comes into color. The kingdom of God is invisible, but it's here. And when the light of the gospel, through the prayers and the faithfulness of God's people, shines on it, shines on this world, the kingdom comes to bear, that you actually see the kingdom. It gives you a tremendous sense of confidence when you're called to walk into injustice or walk into evil or walk into that impossible situation when you know that the kingdom has come. It's here, and I'm walking into this situation on faith with prayer and faith to shine the light of the gospel and to see where the kingdom comes to life. That's why we enter a place like Southwind Villas, as Micah shared, a community that has no church and really has never had a church partner in that community. We walk in with great confidence that the kingdom has come, and because of that, things can happen if we're faithful just to walk in. So if the already brings confidence, the not yet brings hope. The not yet brings hope. Look at verse 17. Oh Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will, will, now notice the psalmist here changes to future tense. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Why do you need the not yet? What happens when things don't change? what happens when the person committing injustice seems to get away with it over and over with no consequences, right? When that happens, you need the not yet. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, when you pray that, you are reminding yourself that the kingdom is coming in full. It's come, but it's coming in full, And that there is no active injustice, no oppression, no sin, no violence, no evil that will be unaccounted for. That every last sin, evil, injustice, violence will be paid for. Nothing gets swept under the carpet. That God is just and it gets paid for in one of two ways. Either Jesus Christ pays for it on the cross through repentance and faith or the wrongdoer pays but it gets paid for. And that's why you and I don't take vengeance into our own hands. God has taken care of it and will take care of it. Justice will be served. And as you pray, as you pray for your enemy, and as you pray the already but not yet, you pray the kingdom's come, I've got confidence. Oh, but the the kingdom's yet to come in full. I've got hope when things don't change. When you pray the already but not yet, it does a couple things. One, it gives you confidence, it gives you hope, and it lines up your heart with God's heart, which means that you're moved to action. You know, when you start to pray for things, you start moving towards action. God and the Spirit starts moving you towards action. In his book, When a Nation Forgets God, Erwin Lutzer, he he retells uh, one Christian's story of living in Hitler's Germany. Listen to what he says. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning, we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cry coming from the train as it passed by. We realized it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming. And when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly. And soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore. But I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians, yet did nothing to intervene. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have intervened that you have intervened in the the course of human history at the cross and that the violence and the injustice and the hatred and the evil was thrust onto your son Jesus and that he received that blow with the earth shaking, with rocks splitting, with darkness filling the land. Father, we thank you that justice has been served and it will be served. And yet, Father, we pray as people who have been forgiven, whose sin has been thrust on Jesus, whose evil thoughts have been thrust on Jesus, and as we stand free and forgiven, that we would become your ambassadors, that we would be people who see injustice And with prayer and action, do something about it. Father, that we would be a people who care about the fatherless and the oppressed. That this week, we may see fatherless kids at these backyard Bible clubs. That in the coming weeks and months, as we partner at Southwind Villas, that we we will see six to eight kids sleeping in an apartment fatherless. that need you, Jesus. And so in, in prayer for our enemies, in prayer for the already, in prayer for the not yet, would you move us to action as your ambassadors and to see the kingdom that has already come, come to life in hearts and in places of this city that you have placed us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.